Well, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 27. Uh, If you would open your Bibles there, um, I'm going to begin with prayer, and then we will, or I'm going to begin by reading the psalm, and then I'll pray, and then we will dig in. Psalm 27. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we thank you. For your word. We thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us, but that you have very clearly revealed who you are, Lord, and what it means to be in fellowship with you. We pray this morning as we come to your word to hear the, the words of our brother David, Lord, we pray that, that you will, by the power of your spirit, enliven our hearts to fear your name. Lord, we pray that you will convict us of our sin, that you will will stir our affections to love you and to desire your presence and to desire communion with you even as David himself desired it. So Lord, please be with us this morning. Please be with me and may the meditations of my heart, Lord, and the words of my mouth be pleasing unto you. In Christ's name, amen. So as we approach our psalm today, I have been thinking and thinking and thinking about how to introduce this sermon spent so much time perusing the internet that I almost forgot to write it. So the introduction is just simply going to be the psalm. Our text is Psalm 27. And before we start working through the psalm, there are several important things to keep in mind. First is the context of the psalm. Psalm 27 begins of David. Now we often will just throw off these superscriptions, but these are original to the text. This this is not a throwaway phrase, but it communicates that this psalm was written by the anointed king of Israel at a certain point in his life. Aaron has just preached through the book of Samuel, so I I just want to refresh us. 
David begins as a, as a shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse. And yet David was chosen, he was anointed as the king of Israel by the prophet Samuel, and it was declared by God that David was a man after God's own heart. So there are two important things for us to remember as we consider this psalm. One is that David was a man after God's own heart, and two, that David was the anointed king. Now, to be the anointed king meant that David was God's choice to rule the nation of Israel. That means that to oppose David's rise, to, to have tried to oppose his, his ascension to the throne, would have been to oppose God himself. So we have Psalm 27. We have David. But when and why did David write Psalm 27? We do have some historical information in the book of Psalms. Looking at Psalm 3, it highlights the rebellion of Absalom. Psalm 7 then highlights a man named Cush, the Benjaminite. Now, we don't know who Cush is, but people will generally say it's one of two people. So in the rebellion of Absalom, when Absalom comes to take Jerusalem and David flees, when David flees, he is accosted and cursed by a man named Shimei the Benjaminite. That's a possible candidate for Cush. The second candidate is the next historical reference in the book of Psalms, which is the King Saul. Saul then is referred to the, the, the context for why Psalm 18 came about, that David is praising God for saving him from Saul. So Psalm 18 highlights Saul. Psalm 7 highlights Cush, who's either Saul or Shimei. And Psalm 3 highlights Absalom. What do all of these things have in common? that they stood in opposition to and persecuted the man whom God had anointed for the throne. And this indeed highlights the context of book one of the Psalter, that, that David suffered on his ascension to the throne, that, that God had anointed David, that God would bring David and install him as the king against all odds, and that it was God who was preserving this throne. And so Psalm 27 was written by David, the anointed king, the man after God's own heart. But how is it that we have come to have Psalm 27 in the Psalter? Now, the, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, was likely compiled by the Jews who had returned from the exile. Some believe that it's Ezra himself who compiled the Psalms. And so it was put together to highlight the rise of David, the fall of David, but ultimately to give Israel hope for the coming restoration of the Davidic king through the, the, the installation of the Messiah. And so the, all of these contexts are important. And all of these contexts make this psalm really hard to preach in one sermon. Because th this whole thing is this beautiful tapestry that has to be weaved together. And I am not a fit preacher to do so. So we will give it our best attempt. And so with these contexts in mind, let's jump to our first point, which is David's confidence. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. 
Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David's confidence is in the Lord alone. David's confidence is in the Lord alone, even in the midst of intense persecution. The ground of David's confidence is God, because look at what David says. God is his light, his salvation, and the stronghold of his life. God is David's light. Think about this. Darkness brings terror. Why are children afraid of the dark? Why are we more afraid when it's dark? Because we can't see what's around us. We don't know the direction of a threat, nor do we even know what possible threats exist because we simply can't see. Light dispels the darkness. Light illuminates what's around us. Light is revealing. And for David, God's presence was like light in the darkness. That is, God's promise to David that he would be the anointed king established David's feet on the solid ground of God's word. God's word was a light to David, especially in the midst of suffering and persecution, because it illuminated God's good purposes for David. David knew that his assailants would not ultimately overthrow him because God had promised him the throne. David's confidence was stable insofar as he did not question the promise or God's ability to bring it through. David knew that salvation would come, which brings us to our next title. God is David's salvation. David had been rescued time and time again, yes. But what David is calling to mind by thinking of God as his salvation is the miraculous redemption of God's people from Egypt known as the Exodus. When Jews thought about the idea of salvation, the Exodus was the foundational concept. That is, Israel had been enslaved in the land of Egypt, which was the, the superpower of the day. Egypt had the best land. They had the best technology. They had the most people. From, from a human perspective, e Egypt seemed impregnable. But God demonstrated his omnipotent power by bringing Egypt to their knees through the words of a stutterer and ten plagues. God redeemed Israel from Egypt. He freed them from their bondage. And against all odds, he established them as a new nation in a land flowing with milk and honey. David's confidence was that the God who had waged war against Egypt was standing at his shoulder now. David trusted the word of God. David knew that God kept his promises. And David knew that none of God's plans or purposes could be thwarted. And now the final aspect of David's confidence is that God is a stronghold for David. The Lord is a stronghold, a fortified city, a fortress. God is a place of shelter, a place of protection, a place of provision. God is unassailable. And David knew that God could and would protect his very life. For anything to get to David, it had to go through the sovereign God of the universe. Therefore, Nate, David knew that his life was safe. And David reminded himself over and over that God is my protector. God alone was David's confidence. <clears throat> the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who conquered Egypt and redeemed Israel, that God was fighting for David. Therefore, David did not fear. David knew the promises of God. 
David knew the plans and purposes of God. And David trusted that the Lord could and would accomplish everything that he had set his mind to. And look at the opposition, right? It's not, it's not as though David's playing the, the B team as, as one of the most prolific athletes. Verse 2, he's, he's facing evildoers who are vicious. Like wild animals, they want to tear his flesh to shreds. Look at verse 3. David is picturing himself facing an entire army arrayed for battle against him. As I said in the intro, this event is framed in light of Absalom's rebellion and Saul's attempt to murder David. What is the same about both of these events is that both of these men created an army, they gathered an entire army and sought to wield the power of the state to overthrow God's anointed king. Saul was trying to prevent the rightful king from taking the throne, and Absalom was trying to throw the rightful king off of his throne. But in both cases, David knew that these men were not merely opposing David, but that insofar as they were opposing God's anointed, they were opposing God himself. And so, David is confident. David is not confident in his sneakiness or his ability to hide in caves. David is not confident in his numbers or the ability of his soldiers. David is confident because he knows God. David knows that God stands superior to any amount of human power or ingenuity. The nations, all of the nations are but dust on the scales to the God who can measure the universe in the span of his hand. Even as the whole world is arrayed in battle against the Lord, it says in Psalm 2, God laughs and holds them in derision. God has given existence to everything that is. That means that even David's enemies were created by God and owed God their very life. Nothing is outside the sovereign dominion of the Lord. Nothing can stand against God's plans. God himself is the ground of David's confidence in the midst of severe tribulation. Now, let's remember the context. David wrote this psalm for the people of God, both as a testimony about God's saving activity in his life, but also to instruct the Israelites to trust the Lord in the midst of suffering. As psalms was compiled hundreds of years later, this psalm was put into book one, highlighting David's suffering and rise to the throne as God's anointed. So think for a minute. Who were the Jews, how would the Jews who were returning from exile have heard this psalm? These people were trying to rebuild Jerusalem under the constant threat of their enemies. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. These people were facing incredible odds and the, the constant threat of destruction. They were living in a time when their nation had just experienced the wrath of God because of a broken covenant and had effectively been wiped off the map. Think about the questions that would have been running through their mind. Did God's promises still apply? Is God still with us? Uncertainty must have abounded, but they were acting in obedience to the word of God, seeking to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And here they have the example of the man after God's own heart in the midst of severe trials. This psalm would have urged them to remember the God who promised that David would have a son on the throne forever. The psalm would have encouraged them to remember the God of the Exodus who can conquer nations. 
This psalm would have served as an exhortation for the people of God to put their confidence, their trust in in the God who is their light, their salvation, and the stronghold of their life. Against all odds, God had brought them back from Babylon to the promised land. Against all odds, God was restoring them as a people. Against all odds, they were rebuilding the capital city and the temple. And the exhortation is this. Put your confidence in God. Do what God has called you to do and wait for the Lord to act. Put your confidence in God. Do what God has called you to do and wait for the Lord to act. And so, brothers and sisters, when we seek to honor the Lord and pursue his plans and his purposes as they are revealed to us in the Bible, God is behind us with the full resources of heaven. This doesn't mean that God's going to bless whatever whim or or feeling you might have. God blesses and prospers obedience to his word. When David was, was sinning with Bathsheba, when David killed Uriah, God was not David's confidence, and God did not bless that. In fact, God was working in opposition to David. It is imperative that we understand this. God blesses obedience to his word. When we set ourselves to things that God has expressly forbidden, we should not expect that God will bless it. We should not act as though God is our confidence. Instead, we should have confidence that God is going to wage war against our purposes. James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. But the beautiful thing is this. When we pursue what God has called us to pursue, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God has given us his word. He has revealed himself and all the duty of man right here. If you want to know what God has called you to do, the Bible is where you will find it. David knew the word of God. He made God his confidence, and he trusted that God would prosper him. David's confidence was the Lord alone. And this brings us to the next point then. What did David pray for? And so we have David's petition. Look with me at verse 4. David writes, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's first petition, in the midst of intense suffering and persecution, is to know God. Does that make sense to you? If it did, doesn't now, hopefully it will. David says, one thing I have asked for. This is the main petition of the Psalms. We're going to highlight one more petition, but this is the, the, the petition from which everything else is grounded. And here again, we see that the man after God's own heart knows the word of God. Because just as David's confidence was drew from the word of God, particularly surrounding the Exodus... David's petition echoes Moses' petition from Exodus 33. Just a little context. Exodus, beginning of Exodus, you have the calling of Moses the prophet. You have the then bringing of Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 32, Israel is assembled at Mount Sinai. God has just descended upon the mountain. Moses has gone up up the mountain to commune with God. And what does Israel decide to do? They decide to create a golden calf to fashion an idol, which is 
already in direct disobedience to the very commandment of God. So Exodus 33 then, the Lord threatens to destroy Israel for their rebellion, and Moses intercedes. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and the Lord shows grace and mercy and relents. Now, at the end of Exodus 33, Moses, again, in direct communication with God, asks the Lord, please, show me your glory. Moses, in direct communication with God, speaking to the Lord face to face like a man, think about what you would request. What sorts of things would you have asked? Moses could have requested anything, but what does he request? Simply to behold the glory of God. And the Lord honors that request. The Lord tells Moses that he will pass by him and that he will declare his name so that Moses can look upon his back because no one can look upon the face of God and live. And in Exodus 34, the Lord fulfills this promise to Moses. Listen as I read from Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth generation. What does Moses do? Verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. God declares his name. He declares his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And immediately he declares his justice. And all of that leads Moses to fall on his face and worship the Lord God Almighty. Moses beheld the glory of God on Mount Sinai. And it humbled him. And it transformed him. During David's lifetime, the glory of God dwelt in the tabernacle or the, the, the tent or the temple, which are all synonymous. David uses all of these words here, but all of it points to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where the presence of God resided and where God's people went to behold the glory of God. In the midst of horrible persecution, David's petition is to behold the beauty of God. That is, to know God, to see the glory of God, and to inquire in his temple. David wants to know God. David wants intimacy with God. And here again, we have David held forth as an example of the man after God's own heart. When everything is stripped away, when priorities are revealed, suffering brings David's priorities into light. And what do we see? A desire to know God. David does not mainly pray for relief. David doesn't mainly pray for deliverance. Because suffering is not simply alleviated by the resolution of one problem. Because in this life, we're going to go from one problem to another problem to another problem to another problem. All of life in a sin-cursed world is marked by suffering. Deliverance from worldly troubles is fleeting, But knowing the God who created the universe is eternally fruitful. Experiencing fellowship with the Almighty, the King of creation, brings forth an eternity of fruitfulness in joy and satisfaction in God himself. 
David doesn't merely pray for deliverance. David prays to know the deliverer. And this knowledge immediately brings David face to face with his own sinfulness, which is why David follows this petition with a plea for grace. Look at verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from your servant. Turn your servant not away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Grace is God's undeserved favor. David knew that God did not owe him an answer. David knew that David himself was unworthy to enter into the presence of God just as every human being is. David did not esteem himself as the anointed king of Israel and so presume that God would just answer his request because of David's greatness. David, as he sojourned through the wilderness, was a humble man. He was a man who knew his own sin. He was a man who wrote in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. To hear the declaration of God's goodness and love brings one face to face with the reality of God's holiness and God's justice. God is not just a bunch of parts or attributes that are all pieced together that we can pick and choose what it is that we want. We can't just take God's love and mercy and throw the rest away. Everything that God is, God is essentially. God does not change. He does not gain or lose attributes. And to encounter the one God is to encounter God in his fullness. To know God's love is to know God's justice and holiness. To know God's justice is to know God's goodness. David is not, has not fashioned a God from his own imagination. David knows the one true God, which means that David knows God in the fullness of his love and his justice. David knows that God does not owe David anything because he created David. And furthermore, David was a sinner against him. If God was to grant David's request, it would be sheer grace on God's part. God does not owe anyone anything. If God stoops down to help us in the midst of trial and tribulation, it is a sheer act of his amazing, sovereign grace. But Christians, this is not a fearful thing, is it? Because our God delights to show grace. Look at verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The closest of family relationships may be abandoned. But if you are the Lord's, he will never leave you or forsake you. When we are brought into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, God is our Father. Brothers and sisters, God is kinder, wiser, more loving, more generous, more gracious, better than even the best earthly father. And God, as our Father, delights to answer prayers like this. David's fundamental petition is to know the fullness of God and to, to delight, to rejoice in God's presence. And David, is, he's not just praying for the gift of deliverance. He's praying for the gift of a relationship with the giver. And this prayer, again, reflects David's knowledge of the Word of God. 
In Deuteronomy 4.29, Moses tells the Israelites, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search for him, search after him with all your heart and all your soul. David, in his petition, is simply obeying the word of God. But as we dig deeper, Deuteronomy 4.29, which I just read, has even greater significance for the exiled Jews. Because Deuteronomy 4.29 was Moses telling the Israelites, after you have broken the covenant and you are cast and dispersed amongst all the other nations, after you are in exile, when I bring you back to the land, then you will seek me. After the Jews had inhabited the land, had angered God because of their disobedience and broken the covenant, after the Lord had executed covenant righteousness on them and cast them into the nations, it was then that the Lord was going to show them mercy. As the man after God's own heart, David is functioning as an example for the Jews to follow. Even though they had failed as a nation, even though they had been disciplined by God, God promises to be gracious to them. And God promises to be with them. And God graciously commands them to seek Him. That is David's prayer in the midst of tribulation. David's petition is to know God. Christian, if you're in tribulation, is this your petition? Christian, if you're not in tribulation, is this your petition? Does your heart pour forth a desire to know God and to experience His nearness? Do you find joy and satisfaction when you come into His presence? Or has a functional atheism started to take over the way that you live your life? Our God is alive. And He promises that if we seek Him like hidden treasure, He will reveal Himself to us. David does not just pray for deliverance. He doesn't just pray for relief. He prays to know God because when you meet God, you do not simply find deliverance, you find the deliverer. Look at verses 5 and 6. For he will hide me in, the shel in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The four here in verse 5 is important. David does, not, David does want deliverance. David needs deliverance. But David seeks God, and in God he finds that deliverance. Again, David is not just seeking the gift. What David really wants is the nearness of the gift giver. If we are delivered from one trial, we know that another trial is coming right behind it. Deliverance is fine, but deliverance unto what? Unto some conception of the American good life? David wants deliverance so that he can have God. And this will be for the glory of God as David declares that he will offer worship, sacrifice, songs, and shouts of joy. David wants to behold God's glory so that David can give God glory. David's first petition is to know God. And that brings us to the second petition, which is to know God's ways. David prays to know God's ways. Look at verses 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, 
and they breathe out violence. Think about Moses on Mount Sinai one more time. Moses ascended the mountain. The glory of God shined, and what happened to Moses? His face beamed like the sun because he had, cre- he had met the one who gave the sun its light. Moses beheld the glory of God, and then Moses reflected that glory. David's prayer is this reality. David wants to know God. David wants to behold the glory of God, and David then wants to reflect that glory, which is to follow the ways of God. The reflection of that glory is obedience to the will of God or following God's ways. To know God is to know that we are not like God. God is righteous, we are sinful. God is holy, we are stained. But to truly know God is to to see that beauty and to desire to be like it. Beholding true beauty makes us desire to possess that beauty. When you see a truly beautiful painting, why do you want to purchase it and hang it in your home? Because beauty is more than something we simply gaze at. But it is something that we experience and something that we desire to possess. When we truly behold the beauty of God in the fullness of His perfections, we cannot but help to desire that beauty to reflect His beauty. We want, we desire to be transformed into His image. This is David's experience. And this is David's prayer. David wants to know God and be like God in steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness. But notice here in verse 12, David's desire is framed by the desire of the wicked. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David's enemies are wicked and they are doing and breathing out wicked things, falsehood and violence against him. But David does not desire to return evil for evil. David does not use this as an opportunity to justify some kind of bad behavior. Instead, David's prayer is that God will reveal the path of truth and righteousness to him. Because David wants to know God, and David wants to be like God. Now think with me again about the situation the Jews were in during the exile. The Jews are are suffering. They're oppressed by the people around them. They were trying to be faithful to the Lord's commandment to rebuild Jerusalem. What should you give attention to? Should they labor to exercise vengeance against their oppressors? Should they labor in prayer for weapons of war and horses and chariots? Should they give themselves to another nation for support and help? David's example points them to the fact that for the man after God's own heart, nothing is more important than knowing God and obeying him. David's example tells us, let persecution come, let suffering come, let sorrow come, but give me the Lord God Almighty and all will be well. David shows us how God's people pray and what God's people desire even in the midst of suffering and tribulation. David's confidence is in the Lord alone, and David's petition is to know God and his ways. And David has confidence that he will receive his reward. Namely, that David will behold the goodness of God. Look with me at verse 13. David writes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David's reward is God. 
David's reward is God. David is confident that he will be made the king of Israel because the Lord has promised him that. That means that David is confident that God will deliver him. But look at David's rejoicing here in verse 13. David is rejoicing over the fact that he will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He is confident that God has heard his petition and that God will answer. David is confident that God is not going to hide his face, but that God is going to reveal himself to David. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I highlight this. There, David's son Solomon writes, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and for, as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We can be confident that if we seek the knowledge of God, we will find it. Because God rejoices to give this knowledge to those who seek him. But this is not a passive, passionless seeking. If you would find the knowledge of God, if you would come to know God, you must seek it like you would seek for hidden treasure. You must mine the word of God to find the gemstones of God's grace. But we have confidence that if we prayerfully mine the scriptures, that God will meet us there, that he will be found. And no matter what circumstances arise, no matter what difficulties come, no matter what earthly joys we experience, nothing compares to the goodness and glory of God. Christian, how well do you know God? Do you consider God your greatest treasure and reward? Do you desire to be in communion with Him in His Word and in prayer? Does the thought of fellowship with God stir your affections? Because the reward of the Christian life is that we get God. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth is that we will dwell with God, that we will be in His presence, and that in His presence there is fullness of joy. Our hope is, as, as Isaiah says, that these eyes will behold the King in His beauty. That we, with eyes of faith now, behold Christ. One day we will stand before Him and touch Him with our very hands. Does that stir your heart? Does that fill you with hope? I urge you, as I urge myself, as David is urging himself, the Lord has said, seek my face. Does your heart say, your face, O Lord, do I seek? Brothers and sisters, let us press deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God. Let us press into his commandments and pray that we will be filled with the joy of knowing his word and the joy of obedience. And now, by way of conclusion, two final application points. First, trust the Lord in the midst of your suffering. Look at verse 14. This is how David concludes the psalm with an exhortation to, to the listener. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I want to say this morning, if you're going through suffering, if you're in the midst of trial and tribulation, you currently have an opportunity like never before. You have an opportunity to know God. God works through suffering to draw us closer to himself. That is why the Apostle Paul can say that we rejoice in our trials. 
We rejoice because those trials mean that God, or those trials are the means that God uses to conform us into the image of His Son. To be conformed into the image of God is to be brought into greater fellowship with Him. Friend, don't waste your suffering. Pursue God in your suffering. Beg God to show you His glory. Beg Him to satisfy your soul with His steadfast love and goodness and then turn to His Word and seek Him there. And then wait for Him. Be strong and courageous and wait. God is our confidence and we are confident that He hears our prayers and will answer us when we call out to Him. But it may not be on our desired timeline. God will answer if we keep beating on that door like the persistent widow. David was confident that the Lord would answer, and the Lord did answer. Our God is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God delighted, to meet God, uh, God delighted to meet David, and we trust that God will meet us as well if we seek him. And our final point, worship David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Our psalm this morning was written by David as a testimony of God's gracious intervention and his prayer in the midst of deep turmoil. David also wrote this psalm to instruct Israel in worship. It both led them to worship God for the preservation of their king, but it also served as an example of how the man of God faces suffering and persecution. This psalm then was taken and bound together with the other psalms into the, the book of Psalms, and it was bound alongside of the other psalms highlighting the rise and the suffering of King David, ultimately to point the Jews in exile not to put their hope in, in the status quo and the way things are, but to put their hope in the fact that God is going to restore the Davidic throne under the divine Messiah, Jesus Christ. This book was written to instruct Israel to look beyond their own current circumstances and trust that God was going to fulfill his promise and install a king on the throne who would reign over all the nations forever. God preserved David through incredible odds. And the promise was that God would do it again. The promise that was that God would establish the throne of David's son and that that throne would be an eternal throne. In drawing Israel's eyes to King David, the psalm was the call for Israel to remember the promise of God in the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah coming in the line of David. This psalm was to give the Israelites hope and confidence in the certainty of God's plans for the future, namely the coming and future king of Israel, through whom the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah would be established, through whom all things would be made right, through whom God would overthrow the dominion of sin and death, and through whom God would establish his kingdom. The Messiah who is not only the son of David, but the Messiah who was himself the eternal son of God. David was a man after God's own heart, but David was also an utter failure. David's life was marked by adultery and murder. David's kingdom was marked by division and hostility. Yes, David defeated Goliath and the Philistines, but David could not defeat his own sin, and David himself was eventually defeated and destroyed by the greatest enemy, death. Israel was overthrown by their own sin. Both Israel and David needed deeper deliverance. They needed deliverance from sin and death. And David's life served as a pattern pointing to the one who was to come. 
Just as David faced persecution, Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss from a close friend. Just as David feared for his life, Jesus Christ prayed with tears, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. David prayed that God would deliver him from sinners, but Jesus Christ was delivered into the hands of sinners, and like wild animals, they ripped his body to shreds. Jesus was not simply forsaken by his family and his followers. Jesus Christ was made a curse because that was the only way that our curse could be undone. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, David's greater son, drank the cup of God's wrath to to satisfy God's just vengeance so that we sinners could be transformed from God's enemies into God's sons and daughters. David was conquered by sin and death, but Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death, and Jesus has paved the way for us to have eternal joy in fellowship and loving communion with our triune God. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart, but Jesus Christ was God of very God. And so worship him. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. In Christ, we have received the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have received the love of God and adoption into his family. In Christ, we have received grace and holiness. In Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit and eternal life. So turn your eyes to Jesus. Everything that the Jews in exile hoped for, the coming Messiah, the establishment of the kingdom, the era of the new covenant, they have all been fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ, and now we await the final consummation of all things in Him when we will be transfigured and brought into His kingdom, our final redemption. That day is coming, and so heed the words of our brother David. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And we cry, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, do we not? If you are with us this morning and you don't know this hope, I invite you to please find someone to speak with. Nothing is more important than knowing the God of the universe. And we have free access to him by faith in Christ alone. Please pray with me.